as I said, this is the third and final week of chaos. And um, here's the thing, when I think of chaotic times in my life, there are a certain, very, very few incidences personally that I think of where I just go, that was really chaotic. And maybe all of you, you probably have moments like that where you just go, that was crazy. Um, before I even share my story tonight, um, Sydney Boyce is here. She was with Jane and I hadn't seen Sydney in a while. A year ago at the fall retreat, like major, major chaotic situation. Remember getting this call from Kaylee Wilcox um, about they had, there was, they were in this car accident. I thought she was joking. I mean, I was like, I, like, I laughed on the phone and was like, ha ha, like, why, like, why are you joking around with me about that? Like, tell me what's really going on. And chaotic, right? I mean, imagine being in this, like, crazy car accident. I don't mean to make you fit, um, Sydney. I don't think Kaylee's here tonight, but um, just crazy, crazy stuff. So um, one of those times for me was just a week after we had our first child, Chloe. And uh, this was almost exactly, in a week, this was exactly eight years ago. My daughter, Chloe, our firstborn, turns eight next, a week from tonight on the 23rd. And uh, so eight years ago, uh, my wife's pregnant. We um, were in the hospital. We didn't plan out this pregnancy very well because that year we missed Christmas. So if you don't realize this, when you have a child, um, typically you stay in the hospital for two nights. So you have a baby, but they sort of want to make sure the baby's healthy and you know what you're doing. And so you sleep there for two nights. And so we had this baby on the 23rd and Chloe was healthy and everything was awesome. Um, but then we didn't go home until Christmas, and like, what, doc our doctor didn't even want to show up, I don't think, until at least noon. It was Christmas. She's with her family, and so didn't plan that out very well, and so finally we get discharged at like or something, and I remember going to Leslie's parents' house, but like, we missed Christmas morning. We missed Christmas Eve. I think we had Chinese food in the house on Christmas Eve, um, but a healthy baby, it was fine until it was the next, we got through the first night um, fine somehow. We're at home. We're like, they let you take these things home. Like, we don't know what we're doing. And this is a live human being. And I realized we created it, but um, what, like, what were they thinking? And so we were like, what do we do with this little baby? So the second night, it's December 26th, middle of the night. Leslie wakes up in the middle of the night um, and can't breathe. Like, shortness of breath. I remember her waking me up in a panic. Like, Brad, I, I can't breathe. And she's panicking already. She doesn't know what's happening to her. And so she calls 911. We're in an apartment. Um, I'm like just startled awake and like, whoa, like what? You can't breathe. So like what is happening to my, my wife? But she had already called 911. I am much more thinking like, no, 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 no. Like you can't go in an ambulance. We just had a kid. They're expensive. Um, ambulance rides are very expensive. What's happening to you? Like, but you already called. She had already called one. And, um, and then Chloe starts crying. She's literally, what, three days old, four days old. Um, she's sleeping in her car seat because that's all we had at the time. Like, um, and they were sort of propped up, and it was just better. So crying. Um, my wife is just still trying, like panicking. I'm holding this, this crying child. I'm starting to panic. Like, what is going on? And firefighters show up at the door. You call 911 these days. You don't get an ambulance. We got a fire truck and a police car. Um, and we lived in an apartment complex. I was like, we're going to wake up the whole apartment complex. I have four, I kid you not, four firefighters at our door. One of them has an axe in his hand. <laughs> why? Like, why do you carry an axe? I don't know, standard procedure if they got to bust a door down, I think. Like, no one answers the door. But they're just firefighters. And, uh, but they're trained, you know, so they're like, no, we're, you called the right people. Um, but just a panic. And I, I think I try to get um, Chloe, like, calm. And they check Leslie's vitals, and her vitals check out. 
And so we didn't, we didn't go in an ambulance. We still did. We went to the ER that night, um, 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning or something. Spent the rest of the night there. I think took Chloe to her parents. Um, and she was fine. Had some stuff checked out. Got put on some medication for this thing. Um, not like the end of the world. But, like, man, in the moment, like, what do you do in that situation? And you're like, I don't know how to parent. I was trusting Leslie to just be parent. I didn't, I was like, you changed the diaper? I don't know how to do this. Um, you probably have had maybe a moment like that. You can think of something, a, a crazy situation on family vacation or something, but um, it was nuts. Uh, now, here's what ha- happens way more of the time. And I hope I didn't freak you out, have children, children are a blessing, and it's great. <laughs> what I actually didn't mention it's here in my notes still. Um, the next day, she went shopping. She was fine. Like, got on this medicine. It was fine. Went shopping with her mom and sister who live here in town. Took Chloe with her even. I'm alone in our apartment. And I remember feeling I was tired. We'd just been up all night in the ER. She had, like, I don't know, caffeine. So it was just like, great, let's go shopping. And I, um, just thinking about the magnitude of having a child, knowing that this baby is, like, ours for the whole, like, the rest of her whole life, or at least until she's 18 and out of the house, and my wife, wrong with her, and I kid you not, I remember calling her on the phone, and everything was fine, and I hung up, and I bawled my eyes out. I sat on there, I was completely overwhelmed, I was tired, I was sort of stressed, I was like, I don't know what we're doing, and, um, but that's being a dad. And I don't mean to freak you out, it's survivable, but for that moment, I was like, how are we going to survive parenthood? Um, so go home tonight and give your mom and dad a kiss and tell them you love them because it's hard. Uh, take it from me. Some of you, you're seniors. You're going to be there in like five, six years. You're going to have a kid. <laughs> you wait. Somebody in this room, you will. When it comes to chaos, though, and the chaotic times in our life, much, much, much more of the time, what you experience and what I experience on a much more common level is this. You ready for this? This is what we, way more often it's this, inner chaos, like inner chaos, not up there, <laughs> like inner turmoil. Um, here's what happens most of the time. In high school, you know, again, we go over these scenarios, you watch that video, it's mostly we keep it internal, we psych out in our own minds, right? Do any of you do that? You just like, you overanalyze stuff in your own head way too much, you overthink way too much, um, we get in our own heads and we psych ourselves out, right? It's very chaotic. And so we're wrapping up this series tonight and we've been in the book of Romans and tonight we come to Romans chapter 7 and what you'll see as we read Romans chapter 7 is Paul is like very much in this inner turmoil, inner chaos um, state. And wonderful and yet a very terrifying picture of the inner turmoil that we all experience from time to time but Paul captures it really well. We have these battles within our own minds and with our own heads, and we, we, we see things, and we see how maybe a friend reacts or a look that a friend gives us, but in our minds, maybe they meant nothing by it, but we like go like, whoa, and we just overanalyze everything, but it's all internal, and so that's where we're going tonight. We find that our hearts are divided, and yet here's what we're searching for again tonight is this. How does the gospel of Jesus lead to real, concrete, lasting change in our lives? How does the gospel of Jesus lead to that in a person's life? How do we escape the chaos of sin? Last week we looked at Romans 6. Here's sort of my brief synopsis that I've sort of gathered from uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8. We're really not getting to chapter 8. But Romans 6 really lays out the principles for lasting change. We looked at that last week, how we're united with Christ. 
didn't even get the second half of the chapter about being slaves. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness, to obedience. But that was sort of the principles. This week, Romans 7 shows us the condition of the human heart. And then Romans 8, which is extremely important, maybe I hope uh, second semester we, we could do a whole series in Romans 8. But Romans 8 basically shows how do the principles and the human heart work together to, sh- to sort of show us how we can have lasting concrete change. And so Romans 8 is very, very important as well. Maybe over break, that's your homework. You don't want homework. But read Romans chapter 8 at some point, maybe over your two weeks of being off of school. But so let me read this tonight. Um, Romans chapter 7, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. Uh, Turn there on the app if you have the app on your phone or follow along on the screen. Um, This is a lengthy chapter. For time's sake, I'm skipping a few verses, surely just for time's sake. But I'm going to start with chapter, I'm sorry, verse 1, 7, 1 through 9, and then 14 through 25. Paul writes this for you to follow along. "Do Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries a man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we, were, when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the, in the old way of the code. Written codes referring to Old Testament law. And as we get into this, you're going to see the word law. Don't, like, lose me. But he repeats that word a lot, talking about the Old Testament laws. What shall we say, then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not less, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, used in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And skip down to verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Verse 18, for I know that that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but evil. I do not want to do this. I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21, so he he says, I find this law at work. Although I do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivered me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature to the law of sin. In just chapter 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, So tonight, 
again, in the time I have left, which is not long, I want to work backwards through the passage and uh, start at the end, look at the middle, and then look a little bit at the, the very first part, that metaphor of the marriage thing. But so as we go, um, I'll give you three uh, like headings, sort of, if you have an outline or if you want to grab an, an outline, there's um, like three blanks on there, um, but maybe you don't like to take notes. But the first heading is this, what is our biggest problem? What is our biggest problem? If you have one of those, write that down. Um, but in week one, we looked at Romans 3, and I essentially said sin is our biggest problem. Um, you maybe go, wow, Brad, I feel like, like last week we started to make progress into this, but now this seems more like Paul sort of wrestling with his own nature, and like you said, his inner, how his heart is divided, and relationship with the law, the Old Testament law, and what's, what's up with that. But I said sin is our biggest problem, that's true, but when I get, when I, what I want to get at more tonight is um, sort of how sin interacts with the human heart. So what is our biggest problem? Again, at verses 18 and 19, if you have your Bible open, verses 18 and 19, he writes, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. But he says this, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot count. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. I remember finding, again, finding this passage as a high school student and going like, Wow, like, I've totally been there. Like, um, temptation, just other things. Like, I know what's right. I really struggle to just do it. Um, this, this splitness. And so this is, um, here's, what, here's what we're calling this. What is our problem? Our biggest problem is this, simply this, a divided heart. A divided heart. The splitness, we could call it the splitness of the human heart. Our hearts are divided. Paul's saying, I know what the rules are. I know the good that I want to do. But I just, I can't do it. The evil that I don't want to do, that, that's what I keep on doing. And I struggle. And so the, our hearts are divided. Um, check out verse 20. 20, Paul writes, Now if I, I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. He repeats that same verse in verse 17. Um, but notice he says, again, sin is living in me. Sin is dwelling in him. Um, he says it's, it's like, Paul seems to have sort of this split personality, but it's not just that sin, like, comes into your life externally, and you sort of deal with it, or you can shoo it away, and it, it is done with. Remember I said this one? Sin's within us. It's not just that you commit sins, and I commit sins. We have sin within us. We have a sin nature. It's not just what we do. It's part of who we are. And again, there's, we combat that with the Spirit, and we'll get into that. But the Spirit of God within us battles against our sin nature for the Christian. And so in verse 19, Paul even, he calls it evil. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This sin, this evil lives in me. And so I have this splitness. Now the best depiction of this that I've ever come across is this old, old book um, by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, also the author of Treasure Island. But he wrote this book called The Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody heard of this? It's, it really is sort of a classic. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, not a long book. I've had this for a while, um, 54 pages. This one I have, pretty easy read if you in some school, like want a good book to write a, write a paper on or something. Um, I first came across this book in uh, a Christian book by Tim Keller. I, I really like Tim Keller, but he wrote a book called The Reason for God. And in one chapter, he quotes from uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And I was like, I got to read that book. And so I got it. Um, but here's sort of the storyline. Again, a lot of you know this. Um, there's, so Dr. Jekyll 
sort of comes across his, his split personality, his own um, struggle like this. And it, here's a quote. He says, he is an incongruous compound of good and evil. So as a doctor, as a character in this book, he basically realizes that his, he has a bad nature and a good nature. And his bad nature is holding his good nature back. Because I want to split these two up. And if I do, I can accomplish my goals. Like he goes, imagine if I was unhindered by my evil nature. Um, and so he comes up with a potion that will separate out his, his two natures. And uh, basically, he decides, I'm going to try to, I'm going to take this potion at night, and so my evil nature, my bad side will come out at night, and then during the day, my good side will come out, and I can, I can do my work, I can accomplish my goals, things will be great. But when his bad side comes out, to his shock, he is way more evil than he expected to be. Um, and he's surprised by this. So here's a quote. Um, he says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life, to be more wi- tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil, which sounds ironically by Romans 7. Robert Louis Stevenson was, in fact, a Presbyterian, grew up, or like a Christian. He went to church. He says, sold as a slave, original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. He writes, Edward Hyde, so he names his bad nature, sort of this two, you know, two people. Edward Hyde is sort of the bad guy. Edward Hyde's every act and thought turned on self. Can you imagine being like that or knowing someone like that, being a friend with somebody like that? His every act and thought centered on self. And so to Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, uh, Edward Hyde had because he was hidden. He was hideous, but he also he was hidden. He was even hidden from Dr. Jekyll. And so um, Edward Hyde begins to sort of take over Dr. Jekyll I won't recount the whole story. Eventually, he starts murdering people. Um, Mr. Or Edward Hyde does. Dr. Jekyll's like how, do I, um, like, how do I get rid of this guy? But he starts to sort of take over. Um, sort of a tragic book, a, a dark book. But he thinks only of his own desires all the time. He will, do, he will go to any length to gratify his own desires, and he eventually starts killing people, like I said. And what Robert Louis Stevenson is saying, and what the Apostle Paul is saying, is that even the very, very best people um, have within them this incredible potential for evil, this enormous capacity for absorption and self-centeredness and narcissism. Maybe I've said this before, but um, realize that at the root of sin, at the root of all sin, is the self-centeredness of the human heart. And it's within all of us. And here's what we experience. Certain, certain situations arise in our life from time to time that sort of bring out our bad, bad side, right? That bring out our Edward Hyde, stress or temptation or just not getting our way or a fight with mom or dad. And our, di- our dark side comes out and we, um, we're just deeply self-centered and self-absorbed. And so um, that's our biggest problem, the di- like division, the, s- the split of the human heart. Do you believe that about yourself and about others? We try to suppress it, but that's our biggest problem. The second thing is this, what won't work what won't work against it? Paul says that the main thing that we use to combat this deep inner sinfulness within us, um, the main thing doesn't work. And we all try to do it. And so the main thing that we turn to and that Paul talks about a ton is this, what I'm calling the moral law. The moral law. In other words, we turn to our good side. turn to our goodness and our sort of external, self-motivated, um, good behavior. Now, for Paul, he was a Jew. And so I said he keeps referring to this word, the law. Um, like I said, he's talking about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, because that's called the Mosaic law. And fundamentally, that refers to the Ten Commandments. It's sort of everything, but the Ten Commandments sort of sum up 
um, almost all of the Old Testament laws. And so he's really, he's sort of thinking of the, the Ten Commandments. But um, one thing that's worth noting, you guys, everybody has a sense of right and wrong. This sort of, he, you know, the Apostle Paul was a Jew, but this trumps Christianity. Every religion, every worldview, every philosophy of life, that every atheist out there even has a general sense of, of right and wrong. We'll differ, some, like myself and an atheist might differ on those things, but everyone has a general sense of right behaviors and wrong behaviors, things that are bad, things that are bad for society. And again, we might debate over certain, um, just certain issues, but we all have something. But so our strategy is essentially to apply the moral law to our sinful self. That if we're Edward Hyde, we just need more Dr. Jekyll. Um, so what do we do? We form uh, communities, and we try to be really, really good, and we applaud it, and we obey it, and we, we read the moral law to, uh, to our kids. And again, it's not, it's not horribly bad to know that stuff. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But we sort of go, we just need to be really, really good. And if I'm really, really Dr. Jekyll, I can get rid of my Edward Hyde. Um, but in this passage, the Apostle Paul says that won't work. It won't. So back at the beginning, verse 5, Paul writes this, when we, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. The sinful passions, what, how did they come up? They were aroused by the law. He says the law doesn't wither our sinfulness. Most of the time it aggravates it. It grows it. Um, you go, well, then why do we even have the laws? Okay, again, Laws, um, they have its place. This world would be very, very chaotic, right, without any laws. Even the Ten Commandments, just think of our own, like, civil laws, governmental laws. The laws have their place, but sin, so the law isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. But what does law do? Back up here, um, middle of chapter, well, look with me at verse 7. He, he basically tries to answer the question, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? He says, no, the law is not sinful. The law is not the problem, but he says, nevertheless, I would not have known sin was had it not been for the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had said, now thou shalt not covet. It's the classic, you guys, like when your mom said to you as a small child, like, um, don't get into the cookie jar. You can have a cookie. What do you do? You only think about cookies then, right? Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're a rule follower. But in general, what does the law do? It just brings it up. Like it says, you can't do this. Paul's basically saying, before these laws were well known, uh, you didn't care, you didn't think about it so much. They're a diagnosis. The law is the diagnosis. I'm putting it like this, but it's not the cure. And so what won't work? What won't work is just um, piling on more laws and more goodness. Um, my 22-month-old son is beginning to learn this. He's trying to learn. He tests us all the time about what he can do and what he can get away with and what he may be punished by um, somehow for mom and dad, a slap on the hand or something. Um, but decide to get very, very good, and many times we become self-righteous. I'm going to read this quote back to Jack, Jekyll and Hyde, um, and I'm basically out of time. Here's, here's the quote. Um, I remember the first time I read this, it was such a turning point. Again, this was not in the book. I read this in The Reason for God. Um, but this can happen to all of us. We sort of become self-righteous. But this is, this is the quote. Dr. Jekyll decides to become very, very good. He sort of gets religious even. You could, and, um, you know, you just have to, just have to be good. And, but here's, here's what it says. Dr. Jekyll says, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. And I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know earnestly in the last months 
of the last year, I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others. But as I sat on a bench in Regent's Park on a fine, clear January day, and I summarized some of that, he writes, I smile, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment, at the very moment of that vain, um, of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Edward Hyde. Without the potion, okay? He didn't even take the potion. He already knew, I got to get rid of this potion, but I need this Edward Hyde. But he goes, here's my, here's my solution is going to be. I'm going to be very, very good. And suddenly what happened? All of his good efforts suddenly did not shrivel his pride and his self-centeredness. In fact, they made them grow. And they led him to feel superior to others and selfish and proud. And that he suddenly becomes Edward Hyde because of his goodness, not in spite of his goodness. I bring this up a lot, but so here, let me say this. There are two forms of sinfulness and self-centeredness that actually lead to, um, I would say, suppression of others. Two forms. One form is being very, very bad and breaking all of the rules, right? We all know that. But the second one is this. The second form is being very, very good in keeping all of the rules and because self-righteous Pharisee. And before we even know it, we think we're better than everybody. And we look down our noses on other people and we snub them and, um, and we're self-righteous. And so both of these are ways of your own Savior and Lord. And you're actually, you're actually not like dependent on Jesus. And so many times we can produce a great deal of moral behavior but inside, we're filled with self-righteousness and cruelty. Down on others, we're miserable. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. And we're never quite sure we're being good enough. And so that's what doesn't work. Um, I'm going to take one more minute. What will work? Um, I don't have to get into it. At the beginning of this passage, Paul uses this very strange metaphor, right, of this marriage thing. It says, you know, if you're married, you're sort of bound to the marriage. But if a person dies... They're released from it. Essentially what Paul's saying is, um, before we were, we were married to sin. And sort of in a way, we were married to the law. We were bound to it. We were breaking God's law all over the place, even if it was when we were like three or four, I guess. Some of you like actively started living for Jesus when you were five or six. But before we were Christians, we were married to the law. We just, we, that's just all we knew. And Paul says, end of this, verse six, but now by dying to what? Once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve the new way of the Spirit. Back up verse 4, he says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So remember what I said last week? When Christ died, spiritually we died with him. We're united with him. We were united. We said that word meant like at the root. And so when Christ died, there was a death. And so we were released from this bondage to sin and technically sort of this bondage to the law. So what will work? Um... It's the new way of the Spirit, trusting in the Spirit, leaning on Jesus, depending on Jesus. So all of that good stuff, most of the time, it's just because it comes down to our own like self-will and our own efforts. We're not depending on Christ. We're just trying to be good and we're self-righteous and we become, um, we become judgmental of other people. But so the solution is found that through the body of Christ, we belong to somebody else. We belong to this this, we have a relationship with Jesus. We're not bound by the law. And so I love how this whole chapter ends. Again, I read this already. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he says, Jesus will. God, who delivered me through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Um, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Um, so very, very simple, but you guys, you've got to see the hideousness. I have to start to see the hideousness that's within me. And we have to confront it. And we have to, the, sort of the, the division of our own heart. But man, it's not through, it's not just through moral effort. And it's not just through goodness. We need to depend on Christ. So my question is, are you in Jesus? Do you really rely on him or do you just know about him? All right? Let me pray real quick. Thanks for your word. Thanks for this book of Romans. Lord, thank you for, um, God, just how you teach us the condition of our heart. And God, what will actually change us? So Lord, let us be melted by that you took, you became ugly and wicked and sinful so that we could have your beauty. You took all of our sin on yourself through that glorious exchange and you make us, you make us worthy and you make us beautiful and acceptable sight. So God, thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.